We are young and we are old. We are male and we are female. We are conservative and we are liberal. And we're all over the spectrum in between. Some of us love the new praise music. And some of us can't get enough of the old hymns. Some of us believe that children should be in worship. And some of us believe that children ought to be in the classroom at the farthest end of the building, as far as we can get them. Some of us are biblical literalists. And some of us believe the scriptures must be interpreted afresh in every new generation. Some of us are delighted that Reverend Broad is preaching. And some of us are thinking, oh no, why doesn't that old goat just give it up? We're different. We are very different. We are not here this morning. Because we all think alike. We are not a club of like-minded people. We're a family. We're a family. You know, in a family, you don't get to choose who your brothers and sisters are. And in the family of God, you don't get to choose who your brothers and sisters are. Oh, I know. Ain't nobody can fight like a family can fight. But we are family. God calls us into family. We are seated at a great, long, wide table. And if we're honest, there are probably some folks at that table we just as soon not be there. But they're there. It's not our table. It's God's table. God is the host. We're there by invitation. And if you're like me, you're darn lucky to be invited. In a little over three weeks, the United Methodist Church is convening what is called a general conference. This is a worldwide conference of United Methodists. It happens every four years. Delegates come together to decide issues of polity, that means church government, issues of faith, issues of how we do things in the church. They'll be talking about a lot of issues at this general conference. It's out in Portland, Oregon. But there is one issue that is very controversial that the general conference will discuss and be voting on. It's an issue that has divided and fractured the nation, an issue that is dangerously close to dividing the church. It is the issue of whether marriage should be extended to people of the same gender. Now, currently, in our book of discipline, that's our United Methodist book of canon law, if you will, our rules and regulations, in that book, it is prohibited for gay couple or a lesbian couple to be married in a United Methodist church. And it's prohibited for a United Methodist minister to do that kind of a union anywhere, even outside the church. At this coming general conference, there will be a number of proposals that could change that. Different proposals, changing it in different ways, most of them probably trying to liberalize that position. I don't know 
how the general conference is going to come down on that. But I can safely predict this, that no matter what happens, there are going to be some unhappy campers when the conference is over. For those who are our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters in the United Methodist Church, if there is no change made, if the language of the discipline is maintained, I suspect they're going to be frustrated and hurt. I mean, this has been going on now for several general conferences. They're going to feel hurt, frustrated. God forbid they may be so frustrated they leave the United Methodist Church. I would hate to see that. I don't want to see any of God's dear people leave the church out of frustration and anger. On the other hand, if the issue is to be radically changed to permit those kind of unions, there will be other people who will be upset and angry and frustrated, and they might leave the United Methodist Church, include, including possibly people of our own congregation. Back in 1844, a long time ago, but 1844, there was one of those issues in what was then called the Methodist Episcopal Church that fractured the church in half. It was the issue of slavery. And in 1844, the Methodist Episcopal Church divided into the Methodist Church North and the Methodist Church South. There are historians who believe that if the Methodist Church could have solved that issue peaceably without a split, it would have been a model for the nation to solve the issue without having to go to civil war. Wow, what a statement about the church. But they split. They didn't come back together until 1939. It took three generations of people to get over that feud and finally come back together into the church as we know it today. And actually, this kind of thing goes back to the beginning of the Christian church. The lesson that Don read this morning, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Did, did you notice the frustration of Paul as he was writing that letter? Now, I'm going to loosely paraphrase the opening parts of that chapter. But here's what Paul said to the church in Corinth. He said, you are a bunch of fussy babies. I need to feed you solid food like adults, but I can't do that. I've got to feed you milk out of a bottle because you're a bunch of fussy babies. Yeah, that's what he said. I'm not making this up. You can go back and reread it. <laughs> the problem was the church in Corinth was divided into factions. Historians don't know exactly what the fight was all about, but there was a fight, and there were some people who were saying, we belong to the party of Apollos, and we belong to the party of Cephas, or we belong to the party of Paul, and here they are fighting and feuding way back in those opening days of the church. And here's the tragedy. When you're fighting among yourselves, you're losing your energy and wasting your time instead of doing what you should be doing, which is loving the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and loving the neighbor as oneself. 
And that's what was happening in Corinth. Now, I need to tell you about Corinth. Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world. Corinth was located on a little isthmus between the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. It was a major commercial port from both directions. Sailors from all over the world were passing through Corinth. And what I'm about to say does not apply to the United States Navy. I want to make that clear. But sailors do have their reputation, don't they? I mean, sailors come into port and they somehow figure out how to get themselves into trouble. They might get drunk, they might start carousing and womanizing, end up in a house of prostitution, maybe get drunk and end up in a brawl in a bar room. Some sailors. Well, that's what was going on in Corinth. Corinth had the reputation of gross immorality. And even worse, they had a reputation of widespread idolatry. In Corinth, there was an enormous temple to the goddess Aphrodite. Remember who Aphrodite was? The goddess of love. I'm not talking about Christian love now. I'm talking about erotic love, sensual love, sexual love. And here in Corinth, there's this huge temple to Aphrodite. That was Corinth's reputation. And here you have the church. It's a minority group, but it's the church. They have the word of life. They have the good news of God's mighty act of resurrection, raising Jesus to offer forgiveness and eternal life to the world. They have the power to reconcile and make new. They have the power to transform and change the city around them. They have the power, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to be a new creation. And what are they doing? They're fighting among themselves. Fussy babies. Nobody likes a fussy baby. And that's what they were like. And so to that church and to all churches, Paul makes his appeal. Stop the fighting. Get on with what you need to get on with. Paul says you are God's temple. You are the building of God. I like to think of that as a building project. I don't think God's quite done with this building yet. But you are are God's building project. You've got to work together. Now, what kind of a building would result if the electricians are working with one set of blueprints and the carpenters with another and the plumbers with another? Man, you would have a mess. You've got to work together. You're God's building, God's great building project. You are the temple of God. And what is needed, what is needed in that building, Paul answers the question very clearly. I remind you that in the letter of 1 Corinthians, there is that chapter that's one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter about love. Remember what he says in that, in that chapter? He says, I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I might have faith that could remove a mountain. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. In fact, Paul says in that letter, if you don't have love, you're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
We don't have any noisy gongs around here, but we do have a clanging cymbal, and I've asked Nicola let you hear what it sounds like. You don't want to be like that, do you? How'd you like to live with somebody like that? I mean, that's not Ina Klein and by a beautiful clarinet uh, ensemble. And that's what it's like without love. Oh, you can have faith, it'll move a mountain. But without love, you're like a climbing symbol. Love, Paul says, is patient. It is kind. It is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Listen to this. Love does not insist on its own way. That's what fussy babies do. They insist on their own way, and it drives you crazy. But love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And that's what is needed in this building project, that we are that building project of God. Now I have one final thought, and then I'll give you the rest of the day off for good behavior. (laughs) Back in the days of the Soviet Empire, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was arrested, political prisoner, and sent to a gulag, one of those terrible labor camps in Siberia. While he was there, he was constantly cold. He was malnourished. He was working day and night at incredibly hard labor. He became sick. And for the prisoners in those gulags, there was no medical treatment. Prisoners would get sick and die. Nobody cared. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn one day decided to give up. So he was working. He threw down his shovel. He knew that throwing down his shovel, the guards would beat him to death. He'd seen it happen before. But he didn't care. He was ready to die. wanted to get it over with. He threw down his shovel. A prisoner working beside him, who also had a shovel, didn't say a word but made the sign of the cross in the dirt with his shovel and quickly erased it so the guards wouldn't see it. But Solzhenitsyn saw it. And somehow he was given the courage to go on. He picked up his shovel. He went back to work. and became that great, great writer and thinker and spokesperson for liberty and for democracy and for freedom in the world. Solzhenitsyn was saved by the sign of the cross, but he was also saved because a member of the family, a member of God's building project, one of the members sitting around that long, wide table gave him hope and encouragement. Never Never, 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 never take for granted that you are part of that family. Never take for granted the privilege of being part of God's great building project. Never take for granted that you are the temple of God. 
Let there be love. We may disagree. Always have. Probably always will. But let there be love. Our great father in the faith, John Wesley, said, we're to be friends of all and enemies of none. We are God's great building project. That's who we are. And that is what we must be. So be it. Amen.